Oh, brethren, let's rejoice today and be thankful that we have such a great King and priest, that we have such a great Lord and Savior in the Lord Jesus Christ. I will not take too long this morning because we have other things that we want to do this morning. However, I do want you to delight in the Lord Jesus with me. Let's turn to Psalm 110, another messianic psalm. We began earlier this morning with Psalm 2, and now we turn to Psalm 110. These are wonderful words. And I don't know how you pick your favorite psalms, but I would recommend that in your top five, you ought to have a few messianic psalms. And among your messianic psalms, Psalm 110 should appear somewhere. And Psalm 2 should appear somewhere. Well, let me read these seven verses to you. And I want you to know that there is no passage in all the Old Testament that is quoted and referred to as many times as this psalm. There isn't even competition. This psalm is quoted or referred to between 27 and 33 times. Let's just round it off at 30 times. You find me a passage of Scripture that is quoted or referred to 30 times in the New Testament. The Lord Jesus Christ argued from its sixth word, an entire argument based on the sixth word. The Apostle Peter on the day of Pentecost and the Apostle Paul used it over and over in the book of Hebrews. And of course, many other places as well. The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion. Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power. In the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning, thou hast the dew of thy youth. The Lord hath sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord at thy right hand shall strike through kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the heathen. He shall fill the places with the dead bodies. He shall wound the heads over many countries. He shall drink of the brook in the way. Therefore shall he lift up the head. Amen and amen. Amen. The gospel of Jesus Christ in seven verses of Psalm 110. There isn't a thought in this psalm about David or Solomon or any other king but the Lord Jesus Christ. This is entirely and purely a messianic psalm. Let me very briefly take you through some considerations of it. This is not new. This is for repetition, for you to be reminded of what you ought to be thinking and doing in your life. Your attention ought to be on the Lord Jesus Christ. Your affection ought to be on the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter would end one of his epistles, 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18, that you ought to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the person we want to learn about. Psalms like this are the ones we want to delight in the most. And may the Lord bless us toward that end this morning. You know our world loves its hero worship. They call them stars. And I fear that it infects us from time to time and affects us. 
You know, we have military heroes. We have performing artists that are called stars. We have rich men that are considered famous. We have intelligent men that are considered wise. And they're all dung in comparison. They are nothing. To even think of your boss as being special. To think of any ruler of our nation being special in comparison to this ruler is a distraction and is blasphemy compared to him. We do reverence our rulers. We do reverence our fathers. We do reverence authority. But this is our Lord and Christ. This is our King and Priest. There is a man on the throne of glory beside the existence of Almighty God and His ineffable, sublime glory at this hour. And He is coming soon. He is our risen, reigning, and returning Savior. And He will hold everyone accountable for the degree in their lives that they loved Him and served Him. That is the purpose for our church. We come together to make the Lord Jesus Christ preeminent. And every man that is the head of his household will make Christ preeminent. He will help his wife know Christ and love Him. He will help his children know Christ and love Him. Lord, help us to this end. Here we go quickly. Men need a king and a priest. You need a king and a priest because you're impotent yourself to help yourself, so you need a king. You're a sinner and facing eternal judgment without a priest. You need a king and a priest. You know, we've never seen a real king, so we can hardly appreciate one when we read about him. We are part of a religion that hasn't had a priest overtly, externally, here on earth for 2,000 years, so we don't appreciate the role of a priest. Catholics might even have an advantage over us because they once had the role of a priest between God and them. We forget the importance of that role. We can be reminded of the importance of that role by returning to the pages of the Old Testament. But we don't have them before our eyes. Yet, it didn't take men very long before the first kingdom appeared on this planet in the plains of Shinar when Nimrod set up the first kingdom in Babel. Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord, built the first kingdom. And the devil motivated that kingdom, and Babylon has never left the plains of Shinar and was there in the days of the New Testament where it made its way across the Mediterranean Sea to become Mystery Babylon in the Roman Catholic Church. We need a king to protect, to provide, to empower and inspire us by his sovereign power and wealth. Kings are wonderful positions of power, wealth, enablement, victory, military prowess, success, leadership that men have had and made among themselves. Men rejoice in a king, Because he's perceived as the nation's best man, richest, strongest, wisest, etc. Like a David in the Old Testament. But we need a priest to intercede for us, to comfort us, to offer sacrifices, to make peace and to bless our worship. Without a priest blessing our worship, our worship is in vain. Without a priest making peace with God for us, God is our enemy. Men take comfort in a priest. For he is perceived as safety and security with God as he approaches death. 
A king has desired functions, and I've just mentioned them, so let me pass over everything I've said. We, I can turn you to 1 Samuel chapter 8 and verse 20, where the nation of Israel came to Samuel and told him exactly why they wanted a king. They wanted a king for a court of hearing, a legislator, and an executor of judgment. They wanted a king like the nations. One man that they could go to that in pomp and circumstance in a palace and on a throne would adjudicate their little problems. And when times of conflict came with outside nations, he would lead their armies into battle. He, by the power of a standing army and by the power of being the final say in the nation's matters, could raise an army. He didn't have to ask for permission to draft. He just drafted. You know, we have a division of powers into the executive branch, the legislative branch, and the judicial branch, but in a king, he's all three. And so he doesn't have to play around and do any posturing, bickering, debating. There's no lobbyist of the same sort. He just does whatever he's going to do. A priest has wonderful functions. And I do want you to look at Hebrews chapter 5 with me, keeping your hand open there at he, at uh, Psalm 110. But Hebrews 5, verses 1 through 3, tell us why men have priests and what their official job is. <coughs> Hebrews chapter 5, verse 1, For every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God. He does your God stuff. That he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins, who can have compassion on the ignorant and on them that are out of the way, for that he himself also is compassed with infirmity. A priest is able to commiserate with you and relate to you because he understands your ignorance that you haven't had the time nor the intellect nor the desire to study and learn the things that he has. And he also understands when you come laden with sins and wanting to be unburdened of your guilt, for he himself has sinned. That's verse 2. And by reason hereof, you know, based on these things that we've just read, he ought, as for the people, so also for himself, to offer for sins. But notice, in verse 1, he is ordained for men in things pertaining to God. So it tells us very plainly what a priest is for. A priest is given a life's assignment. His work is to do God things for men. He is to bless their worship. He is to offer sacrifices for them. He is to make peace with God for them. Back to Psalm 110. A priest officiates as mediator between God and men for them to offer gifts and sacrifices for their sins. It's his business to know God. It's his business to know God's demands and how to satisfy those demands for his constituents. He is a compassionate and sympathetic man, even for sins of ignorance or presumption, because he also has the same infirmities of the identical human nature. This is just a, a priest. A priest, over time, is able to get to know you, your weaknesses and your temptations to be able to pray better for you and to relate to you. In the past, in the Bible, there has always been a separation of powers. 
Kings were not priests and priests were not kings. All the priests in the Bible came from the tribe of Levi. All the kings in the Bible, except for Saul that started the thing off from Benjamin, came from the tribe of Judah. And the two did not mix. Pharaohs, emperors, Caesars, and other kings have combined both offices because when a king has not only the civil authority of the monarch on the throne of the nation, but also the religious authority of determining your eternal destiny, he has ultimate power. That's why little Japanese boys would drink their sake and band themselves with a little napkin and jump into a plane where they barely knew how to get it off the ground and fly it into one of our ships in the Pacific Ocean as a kamikaze pilot because if he would die for his emperor, you know he's got 72 palm trees and virgins waiting. Oh, that's the Muslims. He's got heaven waiting for him. That was power. Boy, when a king and priest are together in the same office, that is power. (coughs) God did not do that. Under David, there were two high priests. Abiathar, the cursed son or grandson of Eli, and then Zadok, the high priest, who was a competing branch of the family tree of Aaron. Long story, but I hope you understand that. Eli was cursed, and and his whole family tree was cursed because he didn't punish his sons the way he should have for their iniquity. And so God cursed his family tree, and during David's lifetime, Abiathar was replaced with Zadok. And so there's David the king from the tribe of Judah, and there's two priests serving successively, Abiathar and Zadok, that were from the tribe of Levi. Now there's a hint at combined powers in the Bible. And when you read Genesis chapter 14 last evening, you found a man that had three verses covering him in Genesis 14 verses 18 through 20. That is the first reference to Melchizedek in the Bible. This is the second reference to Melchizedek in the Bible. One verse here, verse 4. And then there is nothing about Melchizedek until the book of Hebrews. And in Hebrews 7, you are given the full explanation of Melchizedek. Even though Paul appealed to Melchizedek by name all around Hebrews 7, it's in Hebrews 7 that he deals in 28 verses telling how great a man Melchizedek was and Jesus is a priest like Melchizedek. But Genesis 14, he was king of Salem or Jerusalem. Salem is the shortened version for Jerusalem so that you can see it more readily that he was king of peace. Have you ever heard Jews or Hebrews or Israelites say Shalom, Salem, meaning peace? But that was Jerusalem. Melchizedek was the king of Jerusalem, and Melchizedek was also the priest of the Most High God. He was a priest of Jehovah, and he was a king of Jerusalem, and his name, Melchizedek, in Hebrew, is king of righteousness. So his name, by interpretation, is King of Righteousness. His title, as the ruler of Jerusalem, was King of Salem. And his office was priest of the Most High God. And that's going to be verse 4 here. We have a little hint coming 
that something good is coming in the history of the world. And we only get into the Bible 14 chapters, and there it is. Remember, back in chapter 3, we had a little hint that something good was coming too, when God told Satan that the seed of the woman is going to bruise your head. You may bruise his heel, but he's going to bruise your head. That's a fatal wound to a nuisance wound. Praise God. From Genesis chapter 3, we have a prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in Genesis chapter 14, we have a man presented named Melchizedek. And Jesus was made a priest forever after his order. Not after the order of anyone coming out of the tribe of Levi or Aaron. And there will be much more said about that today. But we've got to keep moving here. There's a hint at combined powers because of Genesis 14. There's this wonderful man that's the priest of the Most High God and he's the King of Jerusalem. Is there someone today that is the King of Jerusalem and the priest of the Most High God? He's sitting on his throne right now. But I want to tell you something. By the seven spirits of God before that throne, He is in this room. He is in this assembly. The Lord Jesus Christ walks among the seven golden candlesticks, meaning He walks among His seven churches, and He is in this room. And I represent Him today, and I tremble before Him today that I will speak His Word as plainly as He would want it spoken from His precious Scriptures. These are the the words of our King to us, and He is here, and do you love Him? He knows the thoughts and intents of your heart. All things are naked and open under the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. You can try to fake us out, but you can't fake us out because we just watch how you spend your time and what you get excited about, and we know that you don't really love Him. It's true of all of us. We want to guard our time and keep our priorities absolutely right that the Lord Jesus Christ is first. There's a hint at combined powers in the Bible. Thank you, Lord, for that. If you love the Lord Jesus Christ, this psalm should mean much to you. Because in this psalm, He is a king priest. In verse 1, He's made king. In verse 4, He's made priest. And it's referring to David's Lord, that is David's son, who was also His king and priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. Priests of Moses... All those great priests of Moses like Aaron, the priests of Rome, the priests of the Mormons, or any other are nothing in comparison to the one priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our priest is so great. Our king is so great. Listen to this. Our king is so great. The one standing here is so great. And his priesthood is so great. He has made us kings and priests ourselves. He has made us kings and priests unto our God, and we shall reign with Him on the earth. We are reigning with Him right now in heaven, and we shall stand with Him and judge angels in a day that is coming soon. That is how glorious our King and Priest is. The exalted position of this man before God and His total dominance over His enemies is glorious. You've never met someone so great. You've never had a hero. You've never seen real authority. You've never seen real power. You've never seen real domination. You've never seen real wisdom. You've never seen real victory until you meet the Lord Jesus Christ. 
and read his fulfilled prophecies and believe the ones that aren't fulfilled as if they were fulfilled because he calleth those things which be not as though they were. Verbs don't mean any difference to him. He'll go right through an English grammar and destroy it by declaring the end from the beginning and those things which be not yet done because they're all just as easy as the things that are done. We're totally different. You know, when we finish something, that whew, that was rough. I don't know if I can do the next one. Assignment that we're given, but not the Lord Jesus Christ. He's here today. If we don't believe He's here today, we should close our Bibles up and get out in the yard and get those horseshoes going again. He's here today. And He's coming again visibly for us. And I want you to love Him. I'm His ambassador. I've told you that several times because I just want you to know my role in your life. I'm just speaking for Him from His Word. The Psalm 110 is the gospel of Jesus Christ from beginning to end. It doesn't have any other thought in it. It describes one of the greatest events in the history of the universe, and that's the coronation and installation of Jesus Christ on the throne of glory. It establishes a very precious theological doctrine that we have a king and a priest in one man. Don't you worry about what goes on at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. There's a street in Jerusalem above where the Lord Jesus Christ sits and He's ruling over all the kings of this earth. And He's dashing the nations in pieces. He raises up one and He puts down another. And it may be our time to go down. And we deserve to go down. But in this kingdom, we aren't going anywhere but up. In this little room, this is an outpost of the kingdom of heaven. And there are other outposts like ours scattered across this nation and other nations of the world, and we're only going up. He's coming for us. He's going to deliver us out of this place. The hairs on your back are going to be singed when we rise up to meet the Lord Jesus Christ because He's going to be dropping fire with His mighty angels on this world behind us and melting everything with fervent heat as we rise to meet Him and admire Him in that day, according to Second Thessalonians chapter 1. This is our future. Pretty, pretty good, brother? What's happening in our nation? I can only read a couple minutes of it and have to shut away whatever I'm looking at because it's hard to stomach. But it doesn't matter. The Lord Jesus Christ doeth all things well. He is doing everything perfectly. This nation is going to go no further than His perfect justice and wisdom says it should go. And when it is time, this nation will pose no threat to Him to overthrow it so easily as He has overthrown nations before. Babylon thought she would sit a queen forever. The city of Babylon was impregnable. There was no nation on earth that could touch Babylon. One night didn't even take the daytime. One night. In that night... Belshazzar was taken from his party of a thousand lords and slain by Cyrus the Persian and Darius the Mede who had marched into the city unresisted in the river, in the bank, in, in, the, uh, in the place where the river Euphrates had, flown, had flowed because they had diverted the waters into the desert outside the city walls of Babylon. Unbelievable. We can go down just as fast. But this kingdom of Jesus Christ that we're part of in here will never go down. He's standing here right now, and He is a conqueror, and His head is lifted. He has drunk from the brook in the way, and His head is up. 
I hate the crucifix, and so does he. That crucifix with that long-haired hermaphrodite hanging on a cross, that isn't the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not hanging there. He never had long hair like a woman. He's got white hair with eyes blazing like a flame of fire in the glorified picture that John wanted us to have by inspiration. This psalm is quoted over and over again. It's wonderful, this particular psalm is. This psalm comes 500 years after Mount Sinai when God gave Moses the law to give Israel about the Levitical priesthood. You know the book of Levi, the book of Leviticus? You know that book of Leviticus? What is Leviticus all about? It's about the rules for the Levites. How they're supposed to take care of the tabernacle. That was 500 years in front of this. This chronology is very important. It is important for you to know that Psalms was written after the books of Moses so that when something is mentioned in the book of Psalms that seems to contradict what is mentioned in the books of Moses, then God is saying, I'm changing the book of Moses. Paul makes two of those arguments in the book of Hebrews. For those of you that pay close attention, in Hebrews chapter 4, he makes mention of a rest being left for the people of God, and they better take it. And he's not talking about Canaan, he's talking about the gospel rest. And he, he proves it by the fact that Psalm 95, that makes reference to it, comes after the books of Moses. And Psalm 110 comes after the books of Moses. And for God to say that there's a priest that's going to arise after the order of Melchizedek means that the order of Levi has been replaced. Verse 1. This is his installation as king. This takes place in Revelation 5, though it is you can't read it there. This takes place when Jesus arises up into heaven after his resurrection and ascension. I have taught this church faithfully that the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ are only part of what the Bible says about him. There are some fabulous events that take place after those three. And the first is his ascension. He was alive for 40 days, showing himself alive by many infallible proofs. Then he ascended into heaven. And remember, it's one of the six great marks that without controversy are great about the mystery of godliness. He was received up into glory. Those apostles stood there and watched him just rise up out of this earth's gravitational pull into the clouds. Two angels appeared to ask them why they were straining their necks, that that same Jesus that was taken up from them would come in the same manner to receive them again soon. This first verse takes place at his ascension into heaven because that's when God actually said it to him, though it was said in the eternal decrees of God that he would make Jesus Christ David's Lord. And David, by prophecy, speaks of it a thousand years in advance of it actually taking place. This verse was written 1,000 years before the ascension of Jesus Christ. But it was first determined that this would take place in eternity. In the decrees of God. The Lord, that is all capital, that is Jehovah God, the Lord said unto my Lord. And that second Lord is small, O-R-D, which means it's another word than Jehovah. It is not I am that I am. It's the Hebrew word Adonai, and it means ruler. Jehovah God said to my ruler. And do you know who's speaking? 
King David is speaking. And the Lord Jesus Christ argues from that sixth word, Lord, in Matthew chapter 22. He came upon the Pharisees and he said to them, What think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? The son of David. Our Lord is good with words. What think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? He's the son of David. Then why did David, by the Spirit, call him Lord? All they cared about was David having a son that would get on the throne, draft the army, and whip the Romans. That's all the deeper a Jew could think. So Jesus is saying, what think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? He's not just David's son. He's David's Lord. Why did David call him Lord? Because he was also David's God. And he was David's king. Right out of this verse. And this is the verse that Jesus appealed to in the gospel accounts. The Lord said unto my Lord. The Lord Jesus Christ, when he finished the redemption of his elect, when he rose from the grave, when he visited with his apostles for 40 days and then ascended into heaven, Almighty God, his Father, said to him, Have a seat. Son, take a seat. Sit down. You have finished the work which I gave you to do on earth. Now let me crush your enemies with you and make them your footstool. A footstool. You know, kings like to cut off the feet, cut off the toes, cut off the thumbs of of opposing kings so that they would crawl around under their dinner table waiting for scraps. You know, they would make them a foot like a footstool. You know, something under your feet. You just grind your feet over somebody. And here's God promising the Lord Jesus Christ, I'll make your enemies your footstool. Do you know how Jesus Christ handled his enemies while he was on earth? He did not open his mouth. It says he was dumb like a sheep before her shears is dumb. That word dumb is not stupid. That word dumb is did not speak. When he was threatened, he didn't revile. He was quiet. They marveled that he wouldn't say a thing, though they were provoking him so much. Oh, he's different now, brethren. And God speaking up for him, yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion, as he said in Psalm 2. And here he says, sit thou at my right hand. Wherefore, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ being highly exalted, God has given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's because he died for us. And he is seated at God's right hand on that throne. And God promised to make his enemies his footstool. Do you know how precious Psalm 110 is? That 1,000 years in advance of the event, you are able to read a prophecy about a conversation between Jehovah and the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord. All capitals. That's the God of the burning bush of Moses. The Lord Jehovah said, we're, we're privy to a conversation. Can you believe that they actually worry about tapes of Watergate? Can you imagine the wasted time of thinking of such frivolous things? The Lord 
said unto my Lord. That is what revelation is all about. We wouldn't have a clue of any of that if God didn't reveal it to us. 1,000 years before it happened, we get a prophecy of it, and we know that for there to be a prophecy of it, it had been decreed from eternity past, because Acts 15.18 says, Known unto God are all His works from the beginning of the world. And then it happened 2,000 years ago, and here we are 2,000 years later. We know it was decreed in eternity. We know it was prophesied 3,000 years ago. We know it took place 2,000 years ago. Sit thou at my right hand. And he's coming for us soon. And we have, we have a door opened. Revelation 4 says that a door was opened in heaven. And John got to go through it and see what it's like in heaven. And to read Psalm 110 verse 1, a door is opened to us into heaven. And we go there and we see Jehovah speaking to his son. You have finished the work that I gave you to do. Sit at my right hand. Let me crush your enemies for you. Oh, I like that. They made... Roman centurions busted him in the face. They nailed him to the cross. They mocked him. They put a purple robe on him. They made a crown of thorns to mock him as a king. Oh, he is. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. So much could be said, brethren. Verse 1 is his kingship. The Lord said unto my Lord. Jesus argues from that sixth word that that means Jesus was David's king. Sit thou at my right hand until I make the enemies thy footstool. Next promise. The Lord, this is back to Jehovah. The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength, that is the strength of the Lord Jesus Christ, out of Zion. Zion is this capital, citadel, fortress of the Jebusites that Joab and David took, and it became the city of David, the city of Jerusalem. It was, it was a fortress on top of a mountain, and the mountain was Zion. And a fort on the top of Mount Zion was considered to be impregnable. Remember when Joab approached it with the armies of Israel, the Jebusites called to him from the city walls and said, unless you take away the lame and the blind, you ain't coming in. We've staffed these walls with the lame and the blind of our nation. And you're not even going to be able to... You know what the next words are? So Joab took the stronghold of Zion. (laughs) Praise the Lord. And so there's a fort in heaven. There's a fort in heaven and it's called Zion. And the rod of his strength, the rod of iron rule of the Lord Jesus Christ is going forth from the capital city of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ in the new Jerusalem which is above. He sits on a literal throne. We are not talking about some invisible spirit. We are talking about the man Christ Jesus. He sits on a literal glorified throne. He has a glorified body. He has a scepter in his hand and he's ruling the nations with a rod of iron and he puts down those that he wants to put down. He raises up those he wants to raise up and he saves his people. And he is here by his spirit in this assembly. And he walks among his churches. And he makes us kings and priests. And we can go boldly into the presence of Almighty God in his name because he is seated at God's right hand. Verse 2 just tells us, The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion. And there was strength that came out of the Jerusalem which is above. There was power that came out. Just seven days 
after the Lord Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, He unloaded the Holy Spirit. You read that yesterday if you read my opening passage of Scripture in the preparatory email from Acts chapter 2, that Jesus Christ, now being seated at the right hand of God, hath shed forth this, which ye both see and hear, fishermen from the Sea of Galilee that couldn't even speak the Jews' language properly were speaking in all the tongues of the nations and glorifying God. Because power was coming forth. And when they baptized 3,000, they began speaking in tongues. And then there were 5,000 converted the next day. And then it says they were multiplied, both men and women that were being converted by the power of the Lord Jesus Christ in the day of His power. Because He is now seated on the throne of glory. And He blesses those apostles. And He takes His most vile enemy, Saul of Tarsus, and makes him his greatest apostle. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. And the rod of his strength. But the real rod of his strength came out in 70 AD when he marshaled the Roman armies and brought them into Judea and leveled his enemies. That is the real strength of his rod that went out of Zion. Because it says, Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. And he did. And do you know the Lord Jesus Christ when He was on earth? He said to those that were gathered around Him, There be some of you that shall not taste of death till they see the kingdom of God come in power. Now when it says some, that means most are going to have died. Is there a period of time that you can think when a 30-year-old man is talking to an audience that might fulfill that when most would be dead but some would still be alive? 70 A.D. Verse 3, Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power. In the beauties of holiness, from the womb of the morning, thou hast the dew of thy youth. Brethren, this is the most difficult verse in the entire book of Psalms. All commentators agree, and all commentators prove that it is the most obscure verse in the book of Psalms by their bizarre interpretations of it. Let me see if I can give you an explanation of it. Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power. Your easiest route would be to say that this is regenerating power. But that's too easy. It violates the context. The context is the coronation and glorification of Jesus in heaven. It is His resurrection and His ascension. Of course, God works in us both to will and to do of His good pleasure. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. But that is not taught here. That is taught in Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Here, the day of His power is the day of Him being vested as King of the universe with a rod of iron rule in heaven, on His throne. This is His coronation. This is His resurrection. This is His exaltation. This is His glorification. It's the day of His power. It's when Christ was given power and the rod of iron rule over the nations. It's when He was glorified at the right hand of God. Thy people shall be willing in the day of Thy power. Did the resurrection of Jesus Christ have any effect on the Gospel? Dramatically! How many were in the upper room after three and a half years of ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ in Acts chapter 1 verse 20? 120. How many were there the next day? 3,120. How many were there the next day? 8,120. How many were there the next? Who knows? It just says multiplied. Let me give you another example. Did Jesus' own brothers and sisters believe on Him? Not at first. Not for 33 and a half years. 
He had a lot of siblings, and they didn't believe on him for 33 and a half years. How long did it take, and what event did it take afterwards? His resurrection from the dead. All of a sudden, James, the brother of our Lord, is a very leading person in the church at Jerusalem. From what, for what reason? The day of his power. His resurrection from the dead, his ascension to heaven, his pouring out of the Holy Ghost at the day of Pentecost, and then sending armies in to destroy the city of Jerusalem, just like he had promised. All of those things stacked on top of each other led to multiplied millions of Gentiles being converted to the gospel because Jesus was on his throne and it was obvious. That's why he said you'll see the kingdom of God coming in power. That's the first clause of verse 3. Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power. The elect of God were so moved by the resurrection of the dead. What was the number one message of the apostles as they went forth? The number one message of the apostles was that Jesus is raised from the dead. Why was Paul on trial before the Jews? Why was Paul made fun of in Athens? The same, he didn't preach about the death of Christ in Athens. What would they know about the death of Christ? He preached about the resurrection of Christ and that God has raised Jesus from the dead because he's going to send him back to judge you, pagan philosophers. It's the resurrection, brethren, and the ascension. And so there is constant mention in the New Testament that Jesus is at the right hand of Almighty God. Jesus is at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus sits at the right hand of authority. Jesus has been promoted over all principalities, powers, thrones, might, dominion, and every name that is to be named in this earth and the world to come. That's repeated over and over again because that is the message that Jesus is Lord. And that's what Peter told those Jews in the day of Pentecost and And God is going to make his enemies his footstool. And you, with wicked hands, crucified him. Guess what that makes you? And since that's what it makes you, the enemies of Christ, guess what your future is? A footstool. That's the that's the invitation that they made in those days. They didn't say, we want you to get up by, we want you to get up by the hundreds and come to the front and invite Jesus into your heart. They said, Jesus is going to make you his footstool. And do you know what men do when they hear that? Men and brethren, the elect of God do this. Men and brethren, what shall we do? Acts chapter 2. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, and save yourselves from this untoward generation. Do you notice the distinction made right there by preaching the resurrection of Jesus and Him sitting on the throne of God? You repent right now and get baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and separate yourself from this untoward generation because God is going to make this untoward generation His footstool and destroy them, but save yourself from them by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. Just like Joel wrote in Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32, that they would be saved from the great and dreadful day of the Lord by believing on His Son. In the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning, When the Lord Jesus Christ took the throne of the universe for the first time, there was a holy and righteous king that had a scepter of righteousness. He loved righteousness and hated iniquity, and he bathed the kingdom of God in the righteousness of an earthly ruler that had no sin, was separate from sinners, was spotless, undefiled, higher than the heavens, the Lord Jesus Christ, in the beauties of holiness. That is why the apostles in the book of Acts, and listen, much could be said, and you're going to have to look for it, Because I just have a moment. Much could be said from Acts chapter 4, it says, that they describe the Lord Jesus in their prayers as thy holy child Jesus. Sending forth the Holy Spirit upon men and sanctifying them so that the church became the habitation of God through the Holy Spirit. 
in the beauties of holiness. God is worshipped in the beauty of holiness. Abiathar, Zadok, Aaron, all those priests couldn't do it. David, Hezekiah, Josiah, those great kings couldn't do it. There was now a king that in the beauty of holiness governed the entire kingdom of God. In the beauties, because what's the context, brethren? I don't go running around bringing some strange idea into Psalm 110. The context is the coronation and exaltation of Jesus Christ. What happened? All of a sudden, there is a ruler, the likes of which the world had never seen before, the Lord Jesus Christ in perfect holiness in his rule. From the womb of the morning. What's the womb of the morning? That's a sunrise. The womb of the morning. A womb gives birth to a child. A womb sends forth a child. The womb of the morning sends forth the sun. It's dark, and all of a sudden, there's a sun. Are there any verses in the Bible that they have seen a great light? Are there any verses in the Bible, but the sun of righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings? Are there any verses in the Bible like that? Those are the verses that tell us what happened at the exaltation of Jesus Christ in the throne of glory. This middle clause, in the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning, is the sun bursting forth, and I mean S-U-N and S-O-N, but I am not talking about that gaseous ball 93 million miles away. Even the Bible will call Jesus the S-U-N because of bursting forth with light in the beauties of holiness based on his resurrection, ascension, glorification in heaven. Thou hast the dew of thy youth. Now notice this singular pronoun, thou, hast the dew of thy singular pronoun, youth. Jesus was 33 and a half years when he arrived in heaven and he was glorified in youthful vigor, energy, and zeal. Thou hast the dew of thy youth. We have a king that is never going to grow old where he's slobbering on himself and he's got to have counselors on both sides to hold him up in his chair and a seatbelt to keep him there. Oh no, the Lord Jesus Christ, thou hast the dew of thy youth. He is ruddy. He is young. He is powerful. He is virile. He will take on anyone, and he is not aging, not one day in 2,000 years, and he's been on that throne. This is all about the Lord Jesus Christ, resurrected, ascended, exalted, coronated, and glorified. The New International Version. Look at your Bibles very carefully. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle. Arrayed in holy splendor, your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. I don't have time. I printed off a whole bunch for you. Oh, i got to read another one or two. You've just got to appreciate what you have in your hands. Your people are glorious in the day of power. In the glories of holiness from the womb, from the first, I have begotten you, son. Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power, in the beauty of holiness. As the dew which falls from the womb of the morning, thus shall those who are thine be born unto thee. Thou hast the dew of thy youth. We don't have the dew of our youth. He has the dew of his youth. With thee is the principality in the day of thy strength, in the brightness of the saints. From the womb before the day star I begot thee. Do you love your Bibles? It's insane. And I'm talking about some great commentators. They make this whole third verse all about you instead of about him. 
it's, it starts out with us in the day of his power. We're going to be made willing. And the elect were made willing because of the resurrection and ascension and glorification of Christ. But the beauties of holiness is not us. The beauties of holiness is him. And the womb of the morning is him being the sun that rose on this earth and over this universe. And he has the dew of his youth, not we. Verse 4, quickly. The Lord hath sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The position of this verse is beautiful if you understand the last clause of the third verse. Thou hast the dew of thy youth. Jesus Christ is glorified in youthful vigor, strength, and zeal on the throne of glory. And it is that youthful strength and vigor that is glorified, that never changes, that moves into the perpetual priesthood of Melchizedek. The Lord hath sworn. The priests of Levi, the first one of which was Aaron, were simply made by a carnal commandment written down by Moses in the books of Moses. But Jesus was made a priest like Melchizedek by an oath of Jehovah God. Notice that it's Lord in capital letters starting out the fourth verse. The Lord hath sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Any wise man reading the Bible and seeing this in the book of Psalms, which was written 500 years after the books of Moses, would know that God's changing the priesthood at some time in the future. We live on the other side of the cross, and the priesthood has been changed for 2,000 years, and we will talk about the Melchizedek priesthood in the second assembly, but it was made with an oath by God. God said, Son, sit at my right hand. God said, I swear by myself that you're going to be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. There's only two, there's 929 chapters in the Old Testament. There's two references to Melchizedek. One is three verses long, one is one verse long, and then we've got to wait to Hebrews. Did you know that there is no epistle in the New Testament that calls Jesus Christ a priest except one? Do you know that? There is no epistle in the New Testament that calls Jesus a priest except one. Now, does that one do it a few times? Like 26 in 13 chapters. Oh, yes. Paul in the book of Hebrews explains Psalm 110 to us in that fourth verse. Then there are three verses about victory. The Lord at thy right hand shall strike through kings in the day of his wrath. Did the Lord Jesus Christ strike through kings? Did Herod and Agrippa's And others that were appointees of the Roman Empire, did they meet his fury? Did Pilate and others meet his fury? Did the leaders of the Jews meet his fury? Did the Roman Empire get overthrown with the Visigoths? Did he tear nations apart? Has he dashed them in pieces? Do you know there used to be four world empires in this world? The whole part of the world that we recognize as ours was first under the Babylonians, then it was under the Persians, then it was under the Greeks, then it was under the Romans, and and who's it under now? Go look at a geopolitical map or globe of the world and it's just all these little nations dashed in pieces. Every time a man raises himself up like Adolf Hitler, the, 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 uh, the Third Reich would, is going to last a, a thousand years. And, and how long did it last? About ten? Praise the Lord. Jesus Christ is on His throne. He shall judge among the heathen. That is, he will be working among the Gentiles as well. He shall fill the places with the dead bodies. He is going to be so successful overthrowing their multitudinous armies of the Gentile nations. He shall wound the heads over many countries. He shall drink of the brook in the way. Therefore shall he lift up the head. 
In order to be able to stop and take a drink of the brook, you are not being pursued, and neither are you pursuing. You have vanquished your foe. You get to stop and refresh yourself. And these three verses are talking about the victorious Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore shall he lift up the head. After refreshing himself with a drink, he lifts up his head because he is the winner. He is the victor over his enemies. And if you wanted to read further, remember we started with Psalm 2. We went to Psalm 110. You would go to Psalm 45. And after his victory, he comes home riding marvelously to find his wife and marry her. And you know who that is? It's us. I don't mind being a wife of a man like this. My King and my Priest, my Lord and my Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Psalm 110. Many hundreds of things else could be said. Every word is precious. But the words of verse 1 and the the words of verses 3 and 4 are precious indeed. The Son of Righteousness has risen upon us with healing in His wings. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. His resurrection and ascension are the day of His power. And multitudes of Gentiles and Jews were converted unto Him. And He has the dew of His youth, brethren. He is glorified in youthful vigor. And He is coming for us soon. Jesus Christ is all glorious. He is altogether lovely. What in your life compares with this beloved? He is king and he is priest. What are you afraid of in your life? You have him as king. What sin do you think is too much? You have him as priest. As king, he is the son of God. As priest, he is the son of God. He is at God's right hand in both roles. We have unlimited access to Almighty God. We have unlimited forgiveness for all our sins through the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no enemy you should fear. There is no sin too great. Run to Christ for aid in any of your problems. Run to Christ for the forgiveness of all your sins. Lay hold upon the Lord Jesus Christ. When we say the words, do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? That's what we mean. Psalm 110. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word.